Well, good morning. Hope you're well this morning. You can uh, take a copy of the scriptures and turn to the text that Stephen just read. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter, chapter 2. It's good to see you this morning as we begin the next 12 weeks or so uh, considering how to live as alien residents in the world which God has placed us. Perhaps um, you, like me, have noticed, it doesn't take much to notice, that we as a people are not in Mayberry anymore. And, contrary to some of our desires and passions, we will likely never be there again. There used to be, for many of us, social capital attached to the very notion of being a Christian. For example, many of us were born and raised at a time when putting a Christian fish on your business sign would earn you additional business, right? People would see that and would immediately be drawn to your winsomeness, your trustworthiness, your work ethic. Those days are fleeting quickly. Or consider the social capital that used to be attached to the office of pastor. For some of us growing up, Being a pastor was immediately a sign of professionalism, intellectual care, and genuine concern for people. Now, in our day, being a pastor, much less a Baptist pastor, in our culture is anything but those things. In most of the United States, the social capital attached to Christianity is gone. What was once a benefit is now a curse. And should the Lord tarry for another decade or so, living in places like Greenville, South Carolina, we will see this change in our day. From what is right now perhaps neutral cultural capital, soon being a Christian putting an ichthus on your business sign, or being a pastor will be a marked impediment to your engagement in the world. Recent USA Today story said that, and I quote, the percentage of people who call themselves in some way Christians has dropped by more more than 11% in this generation. The faithful have scattered out of their traditional basis, The Baptist belt is less Baptist, the Rust belt is less Catholic, and everywhere more people are exploring their spiritual frontiers or falling off the map completely. They go on to say that in our day, religion is used as a fashion statement, a mark of one's personal preferences and taste. Now, what I want to propose to you is that we can either lament this reality and sing songs that long for a day gone by when we return to Mayberry once again. Or we can figure out how to respond in a culture that is certainly no longer Mayberry. And that is what I would like us to do as a church. 
Our primary text this morning and the basis for our series over the next few months will be a couple of verses at the end of the text that Stephen just read from 1 Peter chapter 2. But let's get a running start into these verses together, as this is a bit atypical for us as a church to drop in in the middle of a book, so I want to be sure we set the context well. Begin with me in verse 4, 1 Peter 2, verse 4. Peter transitions this, uh, as you come to him, being God, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter is here writing to the church, and he is going to describe for us the world, and specifically the relationship of the church to that world. Particularly here in our text this morning, he's discussing the fact that Jews, the nation of Israel, and Gentiles, all the rest, can now be brought together as one new people of God, entrusted with the great and glorious promises that God gave to the people in the Old Testament. And he says, as you, Jew and Gentile, like come to him. This is a continual act. As you continue to come to him, you are continuing to be built. The picture very similar to the scene we saw in Ephesians 4 last week, as Paul writes that we together function to build up the body of Christ. Here he says, as you continue to come to him, you are being built into a spiritual house, this unique place where God dwells by his Spirit. He recounts here that the things that were true of the Old Testament temple and priesthood are now true of all of God's people. That believers here enjoy a privilege that was reserved for the priests in the Old Testament. They can offer spiritual sacrifices to God on their own. Specifically, through or by virtue of Christ's finished work, they can come to God. And these truths define the way in which the church should understand itself and its position in the world. They are a chosen people being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and in turn to offer spiritual sacrifices, which will be acceptable to God through the person and work of Jesus. The answers that Paul gives, or that Peter gives, To these questions, how do we understand man, the church, and God's work in the world? Help to define how they are to view all of life. And the answers to these questions in a Mayberry age were quite similar amongst people. The majority of the people understood the world, God's work, and their place in the world in a quite unified fashion. Not so in the world that you and I call home. What is true is that everyone has a view of the world. What is increasingly true is that those views of the world are far less homogenous than they once were. They are as distinct as night and day. However, this view of the world shapes how we understand life and respond to it. Specifically, it tells us what is and what should be. And our view of the world, our understanding of reality, 
shapes what a person understands to be good news as they move through life. Your view of the world and your corresponding responses to it color everything about life. It functions like a gel over a light. You put a green gel over a light and everything that's projected through it changes color. Our view of the world, our understanding of reality functions that way. Whatever lens we use to define all of reality shapes and colors everything else that we see. In the non-Mayberry world in which you and I live, there are four typical, and I will say simplistic views, that people use to understand the world and their response to it. I'll offer these to you. You can doodle them uh, in your notes and perhaps put some names of people beside them that you know and love. Four typical and simplistic lenses by which people see life. Number one, the world is good and I should enjoy it. The world is good and I should enjoy it. For people using this lens, this gel over the light of their life, their corresponding good news is pleasure of any type, right? If the world is fundamentally good and designed for my enjoyment, then whatever brings me pleasure is good news. The problem is reality, right? We don't always get what we want when we want it. And in fact, in contrast to the utilitarian maxim, the greatest good for the greatest number, if we all pursue our pleasures all the time, those pleasures ultimately collide. We can't all have what we want every time we want it. But you and I are faced with a world where this is the defining maxim of some people's lives. The world is good and I should enjoy it. In contrast to that, number two, The world is meaningless, and I should avoid it. The world is meaningless, and I should avoid it. In philosophical terminology, this maxim gets labeled postmodernity most often. In popular notions, it was defined by two dominant TV shows of the recent decades, Seinfeld and The Simpsons. Seinfeld that made its mark as the show about nothing, right? And The Simpsons, a show that resolutely around every turn refused to have a moral, right? The cartoon without a moral and the show about nothing. This is an alternative maxim. Life is meaningless and therefore I should avoid it. What would be the good news, the corresponding good news for this lens? Any form of escape, right? Anything that I can do to get out from video games to drug addiction to suicide. My good news is avoidance. A a third worldview, a common bucket that people place themselves in or see life through, and perhaps a bit more sophisticated, is that the world is broken and I should fix it. The world is broken, and I should fix it. If this is true about life, then our understanding of good news is any form of liberation. From racial equality to gender equality to battling social injustice of any sort. My good news is when a broken world gets fixed. 
and I have something to do with it. And then fourthly, and one that unfortunately seeps into the church around every crevice, the world is bad, and I should be better. The world is bad, and I should be better. And for those that see life through this lens, their good news is all forms of religion or Oprahized self-help, right? Anything that I can do to make myself better than you, better than the bad world out there, is my good news. And the height, the pinnacle of success for me is being able to say, na-na-na-boo-boo, I'm better than you, right? In an anti-Mayberry world, these worldviews dominate, and they clash together. They get jumbled up often in the same person. Last night, uh, doing a bit of Google searching around these ideas, I found the belief-o-matic. The belief-o-matic functions online through a series of questions where you input your beliefs, your ideas, and specifically your decision-making process, and out comes a unique algorithm that defines which of the dominant world religions you most likely espouse. I am 24% Buddhist and 37%, not me particularly, I'm just (laughs) theoretical. These views and the intersection of these views and the corresponding actions that they produce serve to define all of society, and they make it really hard to interact with the world because these worldviews collide, often at critical junctures. Consider just on a simplistic level what happens when a couple gets married and a husband and wife start day one of a new marriage attempting to live in the same house with some distinctly different understandings of life, right? I mean, what time is dinner in your home, right? What time do you go to bed? Do you have a fake tree, a live tree, or no tree at Christmas? How do you process anger? How do you process happiness? How do you demonstrate those things? I know for each of you that was quite easy to process in your marriage. Perhaps I'm the only one that that's a challenge with, right? Now translate this into a conversation with a coworker, someone that you cross paths with in the world. These worldviews, these lenses are shaped by all types of things, gender, race, education, vocation, location, upbringing, lifestyle, income. They all shape how we process. And unfortunately, people subconsciously operate out of a view of the world all the time. You can't get away from this. The question is not if you have a view of reality, but whether or not you have the right one, and specifically, whether or not you apply the right one consistently over every area of your life. And this is the challenge for us in this series is how do we take a consistently Christian view of the world and apply it over every aspect of our lives? I quoted as an introduction a couple of weeks ago, Abraham Kuyper's famous quote, he's a Reformed Dutch theologian, and he wrote, there's not one square inch in all of the universe that God in his sovereignty has not declared mine. 
is point being. There's nowhere you can go that's not a spiritual part of your life. So how do you apply consistent gospel principles and practices to every area of your life? This view of the world is and should be the most distinctively Christian thing about Christians. How we see and process life. They should have, we should have, a distinctly different view of the world and, correspondingly, a different understanding of what makes for good news. Colossians 1, 16-20 is probably the height, in my opinion, of Paul's explanation of what it looks like to have a consistently Christian view of the world. He writes, in summary fashion, akin to what Peter's doing in our letter this morning. Colossians 1, 16-20, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, just as an aside, if you're seeking to memorize Scripture, this is one to put in your memory bank. This is squeeze the Bible and get a few drops out. This is one of the passages that's going to drip out. It's a beautiful summary statement of all of the Scriptures. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See what happens in these passages? Peter, Paul, use robustly gospel language to interpret all of life. For Christians, the, court, the, the uh, inverse worldview would go something like this. Not, the world is good and I should enjoy it. The world is meaningless and I should avoid it. The world is broken and I should fix it. The world is bad and I should be better. But the world is fallen and Christ has delivered it. So this is the point of Colossians 1. He is the foundation of all, all of the pronouns in the text. I'm not real good at English, but I know that to be true. We see this he over and over again. He is doing the work. He, the world has fallen. It is fundamentally broken. And Christ is doing something. He has done something to deliver it. So the good news, and this is really good news, Christ is making all things new. This is my gospel lens for seeing all of the world, that Christ is at work in all of the world to make all things new. He's doing this, he's beginning to do this by making people new. Through faith and belief, trust in the finished work of Christ, you can be given a new heart. A heart of stone can be taken out and a heart of flesh put in its place. You can be renewed and restored to life and culminating in the fact that he is one day going to make all things new, right? All of creation will be renewed. John Calvin, one of the pastors and theologians at the time of the Reformation, said that this gospel gives us, or these scriptures give us the spectacles of scripture to see all of life. I love that language, right? They help us see and interpret The Bible, the gospel lens, serves to interpret what is happening over all of our lives. So, how does this corresponding worldview then shape what we do? Verse 6, 
1 Peter 2, verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, lest you forget, we're still in the introduction to our sermon here, okay? So just hang, hang tight with me for a minute. There is enough here that we could plumb the depths of for several sermons. But I want you to note in these verses what Peter does. He introduces a contrast for us that is helpful in shaping how we understand views of the world and specifically the people who will use those views. He speaks of two different groups of people. Those who believe in him, being Christ, and those who do not believe in him. Those who believe in him, that will one day be, not be put to shame. And those who do not believe, who will in turn stumble, take offense, and disobey. This will happen, all happen, over what these people, these groups do with Jesus who is pictured here as the great cornerstone of the temple. For group one, this Christ will be chosen and precious. For group two, this Christ will be rejected and scorned. And as a result, for group one, they will not ultimately be put to shame. Their faith in Christ will be vindicated on the last day. But for group two... They will continue in disobedience as they were destined to do. This helps for us at the outset protect us from some type of utopian ideal for the world. Understand and see clearly here that hostile unbelief to the gospel has been purposed by God. They are doing what they were destined to do. This does not mean that these people can never come to faith, but that their present rebellion is purposed by God, and we need not lose heart when these true groups are always ever present in the world in which you and I live. There will not be a day when you and I will gather in this building high-fiving one another saying, we got them all. Everyone lines up and share. That day is reserved for the end times when every knee will bow, some having professed faith in this world, some being judged and condemned forever. So we need not long for some type of utopian ideal. We'll always have group one and group two from now through eternity. But, in contrast, verse 9, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice this contrast. But you. So, in, con in the face of life, there is group one and there is group two. Group one, professing faith here. Group two, disobeying as they were destined to do and ultimately being judged for their rebellion. Group one, that does not take offense to Christ, is described by Peter using this beautiful Old Testament imagery. They are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, I'm sorry, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Notice here that the church, 
those that have professed faith in the finished work of Christ, are a, from the outset, a distinct group of people residing in a hostile world. And this, this is vital for our understanding. If utopia is out the window, then we must see ourselves as a distinct group of people living in the face of a hostile world. In our day, almost comically in my mind, church people have a really bad rap. It's used in popular blogs as a pejorative term for throwing religious folk under the bus. And perhaps we're somewhat justified in doing this all too often. The church is known for unloving condemnation of those who are different. A strange hypocrisy that does at times dominate the church, where people profess one thing and live somewhere distinctly different. And at least over the last few decades, our strange popular alignment with things like the Republican Party where soundbite triviality has trumped biblical truth culturally. And as a result, church people get labeled and condemned. And yet, what we see from this passage is, in its very essence, to be the church is a really good thing. Church people isn't a pejorative tag for unloving hypocrisy, but rather a demarcation of a distinct group of people that are chosen by God, His possession, dearly loved, and set apart from the world. We are, by definition, a strange people. And to attempt to minimize this or throw it out the window, is to do injustice to the biblical notion of the church. We are always going to be strange, and that is a very good thing. The challenge, and this is the challenge for all of us, is to be strange for the right reasons and in the right ways, right? To be strange for the right reasons and in the right ways. So how do you do that? Our two verses this morning. Beloved, I urge you, that, that language there undermines, the, beloved, I beg you, right? Peter's longing for them, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evil do, doers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. So you see, in verses 11 and 12, this shift to application that will define all of the rest of this letter and is quite common in most of the New Testament letters. You'll see the authors scale the heights of the glory of the gospel and then take a shift to, as a result of that, here's how you should then live. We see it in Romans 1 through 11, right? Scaling the heights of the magnificence of the gospel, and then uh, chapter 12 begins with, here's how you then live. Okay? You're going to see that throughout the letters. As a result of this, now do this. 
This shift in application introduces the rest of the letter and will be the primary context for our series. How then is the church to interact in a world in which their view of reality and specifically of Jesus will be different from everybody else? Notice the language that Peter employs at the beginning of this. Sojourners and exiles. Some of your translations are going to say something like strangers and pilgrims. Your versions are going to translate it differently because we have a really hard time rendering these words. Exiles is not great because it implies that you've been kicked out somewhere by force. Strangers is probably not the best term to use here because it suggests that you're not known in the place that you reside. And pilgrims, at least in our vernacular, denotes someone who's just kind of passing through, only there for a really little period of time. Wayne Grudem translates uh, specifically here, those who reside as aliens. Okay, it's a bit of a mouthful, right? Sojourners and exiles is a bit uh, more compelling. But those who reside, so you get this sense of we're making our home here, we're not just passing through, but we do it as aliens. Distinctly different foreigners who make our dwelling in a place. Temporary residence away from our homeland. This is the same language that Peter uses at the beginning of this letter. In verse 1, he says, Peter, Peter, introducing himself, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Chosen sojourners. Chosen to be a part of God's people. This that may not may ring shallow to us, but to these This is a big deal. You Gentiles can be a part of the people of God, but you're exiles living in a hostile land. Specifically, you're dispersed throughout the known world of that day. This does not imply that people are mobile, most of them having lived in the same place for all of their lives. They're scattered, chosen exiles. And because of this, the church must think through how they then operate as resident aliens, scattered exiles, chosen sojourners. How do we as a church operate and function in a world that is not Mayberry? Because like people, churches have a view of reality. They adopt a view of the world and their place in it, and these can be more broadly noted in two camps. For some, corporately, living as exiles, chosen exiles, the path to engaging in a world that's gone crazy is through avoidance. It's through avoidance. We raise the drawbridge and keep the evil out. So we have a long list of things that you do and don't do in the church, and are quite distinct from out there for somewhat the wrong reasons. The problem is, it's impossible to do this. As soon as you and I show up, the world shows up. The world isn't simply something that lives out there that's a bad monster under the bridge that's going to creep up and grab us, but it comes in as a parasite on us all. So, we can't avoid the world we're faced with it. it. It is the water in which we swim. Or we assimilate to it. Avoidance or assimilation. 
So in the church, the efforts are then made to make us look as much like the culture as possible. To make the message that we preach and the lives that we profess palatable to people who have compellingly different views of the world. The problem is this renders our mission impotent. It renders our mission impotent. We have no distinct good news presence to bring. But we, in contrast to those, have a responsibility, and this responsibility is quite challenging. Notice in 1 Peter 1.17, he's going to use the same language. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. So, we have some decisions to make in our time of exile. We have to, we can't avoid the world, and we can't look just like it. We have to conduct ourselves with fear during our time in the exile. And specifically, we've seen in 1 Peter 2, we're instructed to declare the message of he who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We, as people, have been chosen by God and brought out of far worse darkness than a uh, human exile. And so we are entrusted to speak to who, of who he is and what he has done, and this is going to require intelligence and skill to speak to who he is and what he has done in the face of a world that uses far different lenses than you will use and for whom Christ is not winsome and compelling but is re- repelling, Right? So we've got to think intelligently about how we declare, and then specifically in verse 12 of our text, how do we demonstrate a distinct gospel lifestyle? Peter's going to give us two two hooks that we abstain from the passions of the flesh and that we keep our conduct honorable. Language of conduct here refers to just day-to-day practices. Lifestyle, there's not distinctly religious things that we put in the religious bucket. But how do we choose to abstain from certain passions of the flesh and keep our day-to-day conduct honorable? There is an inherent tension in all of this. How do I winsomely speak the truth of the gospel in the face of countering worldviews? And how do I lovingly demonstrate the life transformation that is brought by the gospel? As residents, your and my location, situations, and circumstances are going to be similar to everyone else. But as aliens, our thinking and behavior should be different. As residents, we're going to face the same world, the same challenges, the same work pressures, the same forms of suffering. But as aliens, our thinking and behavior should be distinct. And we are going to have a host of really challenging decisions to make. How do we abstain and how do we keep our conduct honorable? How do we speak the message of the gospel? These principles are not spelled out exactly in the New Testament. Contrary to what many may write or what you may assume, God does not lay out specific commands for you for what to do in every situation that you face in life, right? 
You don't go to the back of your Bible and flip open a passage to say, should I go to this movie or not? What age is it appropriate to allow my child to have a cell phone? It's not in the Bible. We have to make wise, godly, spirit-led decisions about a host of matters. This is the reason we don't have a book of Leviticus in the New Testament. Think about it. In the Old Testament, this is much easier. You have a distinct group of people living in a distinct geography under the rule and reign of God. You have a book of Leviticus that spells out 613 do's and don'ts for how you interact with the world. Now we have a dispersed people scattered on the face of the earth. And what I do to honor God with my conduct here is going to look markedly different than what Jill is doing right now in Central Asia. We are both going to have to make God-honoring decisions in the face of life. And God has left us something better than a list of do's and don'ts. He's left us a renewed mind by God's Spirit. And unfortunately, church, this takes far more work than a list of do's and don'ts. Paul writes, Therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can, this word, discern what's good and pleasing and what's the perfect will of God. There are some things in this world that you and I live as resident aliens that we are going to have to reject outright pornography. There are some things that we are going to accept work. There are some things that we should reject at certain times and accept at other times. And there are all kinds of things that we should shape and redirect to Christ. Art, media, photography, politics, business, All these areas that are ripe for believers to infest with gospel presence and redirect and reshape to Christ. What does this look like when I turn on my TV, make decisions about my family habits, head out to work in the morning, or read my social media feeds? This is the challenge for us over the next three months. In the middle of that, we are going to return to something that uh, some of you may be familiar with. We're going to have a conference here. Uh, February 20 and 21, MDS, Multiplying Disciples Summit. And during that uh, two days together, uh, it's a short conference, an abbreviated conference, Friday night from 6 to 9, and Saturday morning from 8 to 12, we're going to talk about how Christ intersects specifically with culture. We're going to try to tease out some of the implications for what this looks like in areas of sexuality and media and work and sports and the different domains in which we live. And if that is not attractive enough to you, another draw will be we're going to partner with some of our buddy churches and do this. Church at Greer Station is going to come in together with us. Um, Scott Cato and the crew from Epi, uh, from the church in Slater are going to come in with us, and we're going to have a time together where we work hard at discerning what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of the Lord in a host of areas that are typically outside the domain of the church. Sign-ups for that are online. We're going to continue to do that same thing together uh, on Sunday mornings, asking the question, how do we do a host of different things for the glory of God? 
We do a host of different things for the glory of God. Next week, I'm going to tackle the notion of the exclusivity of Christ, meaning that one of the things that you're going to see in the face of the world is that many people are going to uh, hold up countering options and offers for how you get to God. What do we do with that? How do we intersect and think meaningfully about that? There is hope for us in this text as it ends. Notice how Peter ends this text. That they, these Gentiles, as they see your honorable conduct, even though they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. That as we distinctly live as alien residents, there's hope that God would use that, that that would be a means of seeing people with differing worldviews place their faith in Christ. The same language is used uh, of a husband and wife, a wife with an unbelieving husband, where Peter says in chapter 3 that you live with him in such a fashion that he is drawn to faith by your good deeds. This is our hope that we would not be a Sunday morning people, but we would be a 24-7 people that would know how to live meaningfully as alien residents in the world that God has placed us. Perhaps this morning, even as we launch into that and begin to hopefully perk our thoughts to the host of domains that we have to think intentionally about, perhaps you're here this morning and you're in one of those four groups that I described at the outset. You recognize that your view of the world and your corresponding good news is, has nothing to do with Jesus. Let me say, you, of all people, are without God and without hope in the world. No amount of happiness or escape or liberation or religion is going to fix the problem that your sin has gotten you in. Only Christ can do that. I hope that you see, as you intersect with these people, a gospel declaration and demonstration that's winsome for you. That you see they process with life differently than I do. If you're here at the invite of a friend sitting next to a co-worker who has loved you meaningfully, and you're thinking, I wonder why they do life so differently than I do. I've watched them suffer I've watched them do meaningless, trivial work day in and day out, and they do it with joy and passion, and I don't get that. If you've observed that about individuals in the room, let me encourage you. It has nothing to do with the robustness of their character. It has everything to do with the finished work of Christ. That our hope and distinctiveness in the world is flavored by our trust in the person and work of Christ. And if in God's kindness, he has allowed your worldviews to crash and burn, you've tried happiness and you realize it just stinks. You've tried escape and you're teetering on the brink of suicide because all the other forms of escape aren't good enough. You've tried religion and you found that you're really bad at keeping a list of do's and don'ts. You've tried all of these other aspects of life. Let me invite you to faith in Christ. If you're here and you desire to know Christ, the end of our service as we sing, there'll be pastors off to the side, down front, and in the back wings 
If you simply come and want someone to pray with, talk with, we promise we will not expose you, single you out, make you feel silly for the questions that you have. We would love an opportunity to talk and pray with you. Perhaps one of the best things you can do to a coworker that you're sitting next to, to a neighbor that you're here visiting with, is to say, hey, would you pray with me? You don't know me, but you know them. You've seen their conduct and their lifestyle, and it's winsome to you. They would love to declare a God who has brought them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Church, this space, as I reminded you last week, provides you a marvelous opportunity to pray, to encourage one another, to repent of known sin, to talk and process with God about how you apply the truths of the scriptures this morning that we might be alien residents in the place that God has put us. Let's pray. God, we need your grace and help this morning. We, we know that it is far easier for us to develop a list of do's and don'ts and um, attempt to, to live life as, as good people. And it takes hard work to know how to live meaningfully in the world that you've placed us. And for most of us, for many of us, I would imagine, the temptation is for us just to raise the drawbridge on our lives. Drive into our garage, close the door, pretend like our neighbors don't exist. Be nice to our coworkers, but hope they don't ask us any serious questions. Uh, avoid the challenge that comes with engaging in the world that you've placed us. Give simplistic answers to really difficult questions. And be altogether unprofitable in the mission that you've put before us. God, would you awaken your people to the mission that sits right outside of this building every single day? Would you awaken us to your sovereign provision in placing us in, in the unique places that you have put us so that we could live distinctly Christian lives. God, we need your help to know how to do that in a way that is winsome and loving and not repulsive. But we also need your help in having the boldness to do it, even though we know it's going to be repulsive to some. I pray that you would awaken us all from the apathy that so easily clouds our lives and force us to wrestle with the mission that you've put before us. And would many glorify you on the day of your visitation as your people live gospel-saturated lives. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.